Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of July, 2020, and this is episode 170. On today's podcast, I talk to Professor Ian van der Vag, Professor and Head of Military History at Stellenbosch University, and also Dr Tony Garcia, an independent scholar, about their research into the life and career of Louis Botha, Boer military commander and South African Prime Minister before and during the Great War. I spoke to Ian and Tony over the interweb from their respective homes in South Africa and Scotland. Gentlemen, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Louis Botha, the man and his Great War career? Uh, Thank you, Tom. Uh, If I could just kick off, I'll say, um, for me, uh, Louis Botha was an an interesting figure in South African history. And and the first part that I find fascinating is is his career. If you, looking back at, he started off as as a burger in the Anglo-Boer War, and then he rose to the rank of Transvaal Commandant General, and that is the most senior military appointment, and he, he achieved that rank in 1900. Interestingly, if we jump ahead by the outbreak of the First World War, we see him again return to the field. However, this time he's fighting on the side of the British. He successfully leads the campaign in, in German Southwest Africa, that's 1914-1915, and then also puts down the Boer Revolt. And then uh, we could maybe get into a bit more detail on that later. He's trusted Lieutenant Jan Smuts, and he certainly had a much longer career than Porter. And I think from the amount of books out there, he's very much in the, you know, the public consciousness. He went on to command the forces in German East Africa. And uh, maybe at that point, I can hand over to Ian. Well, thank you, uh, Tom and Tony. Um, yeah, I think Porter stands as a colossus on the South African landscape um, of some 100 years ago. He and Smuts uh, are significant factors in the shaping of the South Africa that we have today. While both were brilliant in their own ways, uh, both are also vilified in some quarters today, which is very interesting, although Smuts seems to draw the bulk of that attention. And I think for this reason alone, Boerta deserves new note and a new biography. So why are you both interested in Louis Boerta? Well, Boerta is in many ways an enigma. He remains largely opaque, and his biographers have largely done him, we believe, an injustice. He was the first prime minister of a unified South Africa, at least in geographic terms. But Boerta's life in its fullness gives us so much more than this. His life straddled a key historical period in South African history, uh, marking the emergence of modernizing forces such as capitalism, industrialization, urbanization, um, trade unionism, and so much more. Some, like Boerta and Smuts, embraced the opportunities that this offered Others, and possibly the bulk of the Afrikaner voting public, were less shrewd. Increasingly, Boerter found himself, we believe, more and more in opposition to these more nationalistic Afrikaners. And this, of course, would cost him dearly. Boerter's very life is therefore a very useful lens through which to study the wider processes of race, class and ethnicity, state formation, questions of nation building and so on in a modernizing South Africa. But I think Tony can tell us more about the work he has done on Boerter's military roles. Building on, on what Ian has said, um, for me, I, I found it interesting. And, and a lot of the stuff in my master's uh, thesis was based on the German Southwest African campaign and a little bit on the, on the rebellion. And as we know, at this point, he was the commander of that expedition. So my fascination starts with Boerter as a general, looking at this man, how he became uh, without formal education. He rises through the ranks and in some ways becomes a general in more than one army. And 
this goes on to become the topic of my PhD thesis, which uh, Ian supervised. Um, so besides the academic part, uh, and in very general terms, there's definitely something interesting, something romantic and captivating about Porter's life. If one could possibly imagine or fathom that in 1914, he's the Union Prime Minister. He leaves, he gets on his or saddles up, and then goes off to lead this campaign in the desert. So I think this is just something where we have a bit of, you know, uh, history becomes a bit more than just that, and there's a bit of a story in that, and that's what we hope to tell. And then using some of the primary material, we want to bring out his voice a bit more. You know, we find him saying things like, I must do my duty. And he writes this to, to, to a trusted friend who was in the Netherlands at the time. And so that's a little bit uh, of what we plan to bring out with the, the biography. And that will be our forthcoming book. Uh, let's just start from the very beginning. Could you tell us about his early life and career and what influences made Bota the man? Thank you. So, uh, Louis Boerter was born in Natal in uh, 1862. So, and this was a very uh, interesting time in South African history. And then shortly after that, he moves to the Free State. He's of uh, Fortrecker stock, or that's pioneer stock, and a long line of farmers and uh, and uh, really agriculturalists. So that, and that in some ways always remained the first his first career and his first love, and it comes out in his correspondence, it comes out in, in his career. And this was how uh, Boerte was raised. It was very much in the outdoors. And um, this gave him, we think, and we've tried to tease out from the materials, is his understanding of the terrain as a, as a man of the land. And then that transfers as a farmer and then later to Boerte as the military man. And we find this, this theme, his farm, coming out constantly. It's a recurring theme. When he's, when he's not well, goes to the farm for his for holiday he goes to the farm and it's very much there when he's in Pretoria uh, doing administrative duties he phones his wife and asks about you know uh, the water pump from the farm and so on so this is very much intertwined with his life and and eventually he goes to 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 his farm he eventually passes away so that's there all the time so the, the agricultural part is, is definitely there. And then there are a few other key uh, experiences as, as Boerte grew up in the early years. There's, there's also his first commando experience, um, and that coincided with British expansionism in South Africa. And he cut his teeth in serving with a commando under Lucas Mayer, a prominent uh, Boer leader. And the commando set out to defeat a Zulu king's claim to the throne and defeat his rival. So that's where Boerte sort of learned a bit more about the commando tradition and got his first experience. He served as a burger, and he learned a bit more about, about that. He built up some ties with, 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 uh, with Mayo, who, which would be a key strategic link to the future. And also there was a little bit about adventure. And uh, also in, in, in painting this new picture of Werther, we, we go into the archival uh, material, and there's a reference from a colleague of Werther who said that Werther experienced fear on the campaign. And uh, interestingly, Englenberg uh, wouldn't put this in the in, in his biography. You know, he wouldn't want to show you know the the Boerte who had won war chant. That was the only thing he would do as someone who had experienced fear. And uh, perhaps I could pass over to Ian now for a bit more detail on on on, on the campaign and, and and on the military side. Well, thank you, Tony. Um, I think key to to this stage or this phase in Boerte's life. Uh, is to understand the nature of the commando system as it was of the day. Um, Afrikaner historiography has painted this as a very democratic um, system where officers um, were elected, uh, even uh, the more senior positions. But in fact, it was based on the land. 
And as Tony has said, farms and farming were a key element here. The largest farmer in the district was normally the commandant or the commander, and there was no closed vote, so the votes were hustled before the time. Uh, the bave winners, these would be, I suppose, loosely speaking, perhaps the carpet baggers. I don't know what the right word in, in, in England would be, um, who, may, who may be sort of almost squatters um, on these farms, providing sort of menial labor in exchange for some of the product of the land, would be hustled to vote, of course, for that uh, wealthy farmer. So it wasn't really an electoral system as we would perhaps um, accept it today. Most of them, of course, um, were, were regulars. There was very little military training um, that took place. Ill-discipline was, of course, a key element and a general lack of organization. However, when it came to actual contact, uh, small unit cohesion was surprisingly strong. And I think it's key to understand this because the commando system was also a lever. It was a kind of a social escalator. But if one could acquire land and get a felt cornetzi, which was associated with a ward within a district over which the commandant um, commanded, um, one could, of course, move up in poor society. And this was something that I think Boerter saw very early on. Uh, he could attach himself to powerful people or more powerful people, such as Lucas Mayer, who Tony has already mentioned. And um, doing so, Boerter moved up steadily through this, we can call it poor hierarchy. When Mayer's New Republic was established um, following the Anglo-Zulu Wars um, in 1884, Buta and the Buta family played an interesting role there alongside Lucas Mayer, who really became almost a kind of a patron uh, to, to Louis Buta, and we'll see that later on in his career as well. So um, this whole structure, this um, pattern, if you will, inside Buta society was, of course, a very important thing in terms of Buta's progression. In, when you talk about, can you just tell us what a burger is? Because that probably wouldn't resonate with um, lots of people in Britain. Yes, Tom. Um, a, a burger was literally translated as citizen. Um, he was a citizen um, of the Boer Republic. Uh, and when they went on commander, they were just called burgers. In other words, ordinary citizens it was the lowest rank one could have, so to speak. I suppose it would translate uh, you know, in infantry terms perhaps to a rifleman uh, when they were deployed. Um, one step up from that was an assistant uh, field cornet, which was perhaps the first of the officer ranks, and then, of course, a cornet and then a, a, a commandant um, of the commander. And then there were a couple of general positions on top of that, general officers, of which Lucas Mayer was one. This was, of course, um, Louis Boetz's patron. So uh, an ordinary burger would literally translate, I suppose, as a kind of a rifleman. And that was the position that Louis Boetz found himself just before the outbreak of the Second Anglo-Boer War. Um, but he would move up the ranks very quickly um, through the war, and we'll see that already only some months in, after those very fir fir first battles, when uh, General Hubert had really botched the Boer strategy, he'd fallen from his horse, and he'd succumbed slightly after that, shortly after that, uh, Wurter now becomes an assistant general in the Boer army. So you can see exactly how quick this escalation uh, could happen, and for Wurter it happened, in fact, very quickly. Um, the whole Mattel front eventually falls under Witter, and he puts up, as we probably know, a very successful defence of the Tugela River line. Um, several British generals, of course, um, meeting their, I don't want to use the word demise, but I suppose in Buller's case it's probably true, their demise um, of fighting Witter uh, and, and the attempts to break through that line. And of course, uh, for our British audience, I mean, one of the great moments of that um, the battles in Natal was, of course, the capture of Winston Churchill. 
and Churchill would later claim that Goethe himself, in fact, captured him. But uh, Goethe never corrected that story, so we can presume that was perhaps untrue. I don't know if Tony would like to say something more about the significance um, of these campaigns in Goethe's rise. Thank you so much for that, Ian. Uh, And I think that's an interesting one. Um, Churchill and Goethe had an interesting relationship, and and that's something that we we will bring out a little bit in the book, and including the the famous quote that maybe we'll get to later on uh, of Churchill. I think Boeta definitely had a feel, you know, we spoke earlier about uh, just building on what is it, the, the, there was a, a bit about the human terrain that, that Boeta understood, these linkages and, and how to make those alliances. And, and he had a feel for people. So in the Anglo War, Boeta became a consummate professional. He's, he's an autodidact, self-taught, but there's an ethic in him. And we see that in his actions. And we also see it in his notes, constantly taking notes, constantly having people minute meetings and, and war councils. And this gives us a, a bit of an insight into the man. On the on the tactical level, when we analyze his battles and what we'll bring out is how he's able to make small amendments, small adjustments in a fight. And that is and that was the real true tactical skill of Water. And and not to sell him short on any of the other on any of the other bits. So this in combination with his ability to understand terrain and also the enemy forces were some of the skills that transferred him into a, a Boer hero. And this, when we say understand enemy forces, he understood the enemy's forces and his own. Um, Ian gave a full explanation of the commando system. And and the Ill, he understood ill discipline. He understood mounted forces versus uh, infantry. And, and and this was an interesting, uh, an interesting bit about him, that without a professional training through experience, he could piece things together. When Boyd returns from the Natal raid, this is where the incident with uh, Winston Churchill happens. Uh, Winston Churchill, at this point, a war correspondent, and really did not feature much in the campaign. Of course, later on, this would be told in, in heroic terms. But at the time, Kruger writes to Boyd and says, right, I want you to defend the Tugela line. And this is where we see the defensive line being put up to stop Buller and the British forces. Buller, in some ways, gets a bad rap from all this. As he did make it clear, do not trust the Tugela. This was his stance as someone that knew um, uh, the, the geography of South Africa. And this gave Boyd the opportunity to, to solidify his name and reputation as a general. Some of the early defeats um, during that time, the British Army became as, became known as the Black Week, and, and a severe blow was dealt to the British and to Buller's advance. On a tactical level, we see the use of trenches, the positioning of forces, and the selection of terrain, and this was all to the credit of, of Boerter. And let's also say that it's not just him; it was also in a culture of the commando system, where it was where war was fought in a practical, in a very practical way. What what Boerter brought out was that he would test things. He would ride up to positions and observe things. So there was that layer of, of supervision that, that, that Boerte brought as a, as a commander. This, of course, has to be taken into account with the tactics of the day. And we bring that out in terms of the use of smokeless powder and the strength of de- the defensive posi- position. In many ways, these battles of the Anglo-Boer War mirrored those of the First World War. Bosa becomes Commandant General of Boer Forces in 1900. Could you tell us about this role and some of the challenges that he faced um, on assuming this position? Yes, he became Commandant General at 37. And it's a very young age to achieve this rank, especially in Boer society, where uh, a white beard is appreciated and valued. And the only other Commandant uh, or or leader to achieve this was um, President Kruger. I might need to be fact-checked on that. Uh, But... 
And this is fascinating uh, and interesting. So, and Boita comes out, symbolizes a new generation of commanders. You know, he's young, he's dashing. They'll say he comes out, you know, with his riding boots and a trim beard. And, and he signified a changing time. He made a strong defense of the Tagela line. To, to the, and now just swapping sides to the credit of, of Bullock, he eventually adapts to the new way of war and manages to break through. This sends the, the Boers in a, in, a, in a headlong retreat. And one of the things, as indicated earlier by it, was the lack of discipline. And this was, was, was something that Boerty could never really get right in his lifetime. Perhaps it would be too much to ask. And most of the, the burghers or citizen soldiers were volunteers uh, in the traditional commando system. And they did not have uh, basic training, although they may have acquired similar skills through an outdoor lifestyle and uh, the little bits about team cohesion, um, which I think, Tom, you also find interesting in terms of some of your research. And then with the successes of, of Buller and, and Roberts, Lord Roberts, the Boers are pushed back. And uh, the convention, and now we see a move from a conventional approach to an irregular war. Uh, Buerta leads the Transvaal's guerrilla war, and that's we've seen a change from the static positions to, to high mobility and rapid attacks and ambushes. And then to counter this, we see uh, the British forces relying on a combination of methods, concentration camps, blockhouses, scorched earth and mobile columns. And this reduces the operating space. And this is the, just the context to answer your question where we both has to answer the questions, the very serious questions about the survival of a people of a nation, and uh, on that point, everybody would to hand over to Ian. Thank you, Tony. What is certainly had to face a number of tough decisions, some of which I think Tony's already mentioned. One was during the first phase of the war, um, that is the, the combat set battle um, phase. Uh, of course, he had to take a look at the raid uh, into Natal, um, which I think he executed very well. During the transitional phase, of course, he had to reorganize the Boer armies. When the Boers decided after the meeting at Saferfontein to move away from a combat strategy to a guerrilla kind of strategy, the, the armies had to be reorganized. So they sent all of the burghers home. There was a problem with morale in some quarters, and they did that purposefully. Um, the men could go and recuperate, they could make sure everything was um, okay back on the farms, um, they could kiss the wife, no doubt, and the willing would then return to the field. And of course, those would be the men with steel still in their backs, and from them they would weld new armies. They were no longer district-based commandos, so we see the Standerton commando, the Johannesburg commando, for example, now disappearing, and these men now welded themselves to individual leaders. So we have a general De Vette commando, a Louis Boerter commando, and, and other such um, commandos now came to the fore. They also adopted guerrilla methods, as I mentioned, so they'd be harrying British lines. They would avoid any pitched battles as far as possible, uh, try to secure their own supply, deny that to the British, and, of course, try to make life as difficult as possible for the British soldier uh, in South Africa at the time. And then during the final phase, he had some tough decisions to make too, because once the British had moved over to counting surgency methods, that is the scorching of the earth, the cutting up of the country using um, blockhouses and barbed wire entanglements, the move of the British toward mobile cars that could sweep these compartments uh, that had been 
created by these lines. Uh, Boerte had to now find a response to this. And that, of course, became increasingly difficult, um, how to work against this British counterinsurgency. And this, of course, was Boerte's greatest crisis, I think, during the war and would eventually force the Boers to the peace table. And that was another set of very difficult decisions, as Tony mentioned. And that was to find an acceptable outcome. What would be an acceptable outcome for the Boer people from this war? And I think perhaps we can talk more about that. Um, in the, in, in, perhaps uh, later on in this uh, in this discussion, and then of course there was also the aftermath of the war and the decisions that would have to be made there, managing the changes that this war would bring about for poor society, for South Africa more broadly, and of course to manage these different factions that were now emerging inside, if we might call them poor society or Afrikanerdom. Uh, at the time, uh, managing those that had perhaps gone over to the British side, those that had surrendered and were in concentration and prison or war camps, and of course the bitter enders who remained in the field until the end. And this really fractured Boer society, and that would become a problem that Boer would have to manage after the war. So what was Boer's role in the peace negotiations with the British that commenced in 1902? Um, so this is where um, Boer comes forward playing the role of conciliator, and this is where his knowledge of the human condition, the human terrain, his, or what some would later describe as charisma, and, and understanding of people comes forward. As Ian's put forward, we, we see a divide in many ways in, in, in poor society in terms of the bitter enders, those that were fighting till the end, and the turncoats. Uh, it, there, was, there was a very fragmented a bit at this at this time. The whole country was in pieces. And here we see Boer trying to give put forward a common position. We're trying it, we, we, we see him swaying some of the prominent prominent leaders and people like Bayers, people like the vet, and interestingly, we'll, we can come back. These these guys come forward as the leaders of the rebellion later on. But what Boerter manages to do at this time, and what we'll bring out in the book, is we start seeing ideas of Boerter as a visionary leader, or what we'll define as a visionary leader, or use different terms. But essentially, he develops the idea of a united British and Boer society. Uh, we can debate eventually if this ultimately breaks the man, and of course, a lot of that's related to his personal experience. He's married to a woman of, of Irish-British descent, and uh, so there's he lives in a in a um, Afri- if I can say modern terms, Afrikaans English household. We'll say projects an idea of a future South Africa that's joint. How this takes how this plays out, of course, is a different matter completely, and we see signs of this. Over here, says, we need to do the following to, to survive as a country. This is a good option. He is a practical man also, besides having these ideas. And he then plays this role in convincing some of the stubborn and some of the hard fighters to sign peace treaty. From then on, there's all kinds of intrigue that happens, discussions with smuts on the side between Kitchener and smuts. And uh, there's this, the, the divides that are there really break out later on. Uh, in the post-Anglo war, uh, war environment. And so, how did both how did Boerter transition from um, a military leader into political offices following the Anglo-Boer War? This was a very difficult time uh, for Boerter, and he, he struggled to find uh, the ways and means to achieve political office. He understood previously what was needed in terms of the commando uh, system, what was the levers to achieve position. Now he was in a new in a new place. And now we see a Boerter understanding a bit more about public relations, about strategic alliances, and how to, to spread a narrative using the media. And we see Boerter taking on an interesting role 
in this time. He does a tour uh, of Europe uh, with some of uh, the other Boer generals, and they've now, at this point, these generals, De Vett, Delray, and Boer, have captured the public imagination, and they've become romantic heroes. Their, their mission, though, was very practical, and that was the reconstruction and repair of the Boer republics. Uh, at this point, they were crown colonies uh, after the end of the war. Boer is well-received in Britain, finds sympathy among the Liberal Party members, and many of whom have positions in the press. He's become some of the strategic uh, uh, partnerships that I'd mentioned and starts spreading his influence and his narrative through these memes. He understands the link that when you influence matters in Britain that's needed or the lever that's needed to influence matters in the Union of South Africa or at this point in, in, in the colonies of South Africa. Which returns to South Africa after his tour and works very hard on reconstruction, education, resettlement. He heads up an agrarian forum called Hitful or the people, and later on this gets transformed into a political party. Um, the roots of this is very much in, in the traditional commander society. He's regarded as a Republican savior by many at the time, and he had the support of the farmers, especially the landowners, and then increasing support in, in Britain. From then on, we see the liberal victory at the election polls in 1906, and this, is a, uh, this signals a change in the tide for, for South Africa. With political connections in London, Transvaal achieved self-governance in 1907, after which Boerta visited London again. At this point, uh, Boerta is the premier of Transvaal, and then Boerta's popularity had transformed him. So he's now from the former en enemy. He's the romantic and en uh, enigmatic, charming Boer general, and now in some ways a son of, of empire. Perhaps... Uh, I can hand over to Ian at this point. We agree. Uh, Wurtu was a man of considerable political finesse and social new. Uh, several things, I agree, facilitated his path to political power after the war. Um, undoubtedly, the fact that he was the Commandant General of the Transvaal Forces at that point played a massive role. He was at the pinnacle of Boer society um, due to that. The war devastated vast stretches of the South African countryside, but interestingly, the majority of Boer's farms, and he probably had near 20 at that point, had remained largely untouched because they were in the northern apex of Natal uh, at that point. Uh, so he could start farming after the war with relative ease. He had access to capital. And I think he was also a beacon of hope and a, a kind of a beacon of success to his people. He did, as Tony mentioned, very cleverly transform the commando system, um, which did not disappear after the war, into an agricultural society and then into a political party, which he called Het Folk, or the people. Uh, very important too, as Tony mentioned, was the liberal victory in the UK in 1906, uh, which led eventually to the grants of self-government for the two former Boer republics, uh, for the Transvaal in 1907 and for the Orange River colony in 1908. And it was the Transvaal election of February 1907 that brought Boer's party to power and of course, Boerta became prime minister. But I think very key was Boerta's ability to attract useful people to him. Tony uh, mentioned Mrs. Boerta already, and she's a very powerful figure. She's not very visible on the public stage, but she's somebody who works very hard behind the scenes, working on her husband's career, bringing the ladies' organizations together, which were very important at the time. But Boerta also attracts men like Smuts, his deputy, who is also the colonial secretary, now in the Transvaal government, Lord Selborne, who succeeded Milner as the UK High Commissioner and Southern African Governor of the Transvaal, become, the two men become in fact quite close, as well as some members of the South African Unionist Party, which was the pro-British constitutionalist big business party, if you will. And they included men like Patrick Duncan, who would play interesting roles during the First World War in keeping Boerta in power. 
when the uh, electorate was moving gradually toward the Afrikaner Nationalist Party. And I think here, Puerta's ability, his charisma, his standing as a big man, uh, must have played a big role. He had a magnetic kind of personality. And it was these men, this hub of men, Puerta, Smut, Salwar, Duncan, and others, that eventually brought these four colonies to a place where they could form a union and the boundaries of South Africa as we know them today were formed. What was the status of South Africa's black communities at this time? When the union was formed, one of the difficulties they had was that the four colonies were actually quite disparate, they were quite different. Four colonies being the Cape Colony, the Colony of Natal, the Orange River Colony and the Transvaal Colony. The last two were the four former Boer Republics. Now, the Cape Colony had a long tradition, or reasonably long tradition, of parliamentary government, of self-government, since 1872, in fact. John X. Merriman was the senior statesman there. And very importantly, in the Cape, there was also a qualified franchise for black people, if I can use that word. And mostly people of mixed race or coloured people, but also black people. So the Cape had a, had a quali- qualified um, franchise. In Natal, small numbers of um, people of Indian descent also had the vote in Natal. The two Boer um, republics never had a franchise um, that recognised black people. Uh, it was done strictly on, 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 on racial lines, and black people were entirely um, disenfranchised. So when the union came together, of course, one of the critical questions on the table, and it almost broke um, the discussion, was what would happen with the Cape franchise? Would it be extended to the rest of the Union, or uh, would the Cape franchise change to match the other colonies? And the Cape politicians, to their credit, stood very firm, and of course they had the backing of the British government as well. So in the end, they decided to allow a differentiated um, franchise over the four new provinces of the Union. So for the moment, that franchise remained in the Cape. It was not extended to the other four provinces. So in the book, we definitely want to paint a true portrait of Borta. And he was by no means, you know, in some ways ethically superior or or um, had a, you know, a future vision of, of South Africa that was united. No, Borta was a man of his time, and we want to paint him as he is. He has a tradition in terms of the of the history of, of people of color in South Africa of being responsible or being the prime minister during the passing of the Land Act of 1913, which in many ways is seen as one of the worst pieces of legislation. We also want to put it in context that there was a history before that, that many of, of, of the of the pieces, there's, a, there's a, a racial history in South Africa, uh, which we won't go into too much detail, but we'll say there was pieces um, that was that was that were in play before. And we will say that what Boerte did and what he didn't do. And there's also parts where there was discussions about reforming the land. Boerte was uh, paternalistic. There, he was racist. Boerte was... Um, we want to see him through a modern lens and say this was the good points about him and this was the bad po- these were the bad points. Also, Boerta on the political, on the strategic level, he had to manage different expectations. And this was something that Ian was speaking about. It was a balancing game and, and Boerta in, uh, in some ways had to, there was a give and take. On a personal level, he also had a, a, had a relationship with people of color, which we'll also bring out in the book, which was perhaps different. So it's, it's these very many layers of the man, but we definitely don't plan to, this will not be some, some 
you know, hagiography about about repainting him. And this is where we want to get away from some of the previous biographers and show him warts and all. It's 1910 and um, it's coming to the... Um, sorry, I'll start that again because I should read the question. That would help. So tell <laughs> us about Bota's thorny past to the post-1910 period um, after the formation of the Union of South Africa. Well, the Union of South Africa was formed uh, on the 31st of May 1910 uh, and it brought these four self-governing colonies together into a single state. Uh, it was not a very easy process and Bota's path was certainly a very difficult one. In many ways, the Union was a compromise, politically, economically, socially and culturally, you might say. The colonies were disparate, they were on different paths of constitutional development, the Cape felt that it had um, some almost moral authority in this regard, and their tradition was far longer than in the other four colonies, that also had a far more representative franchise. The Afrikaner nationalists, however, and the former republics um, saw the coastal provinces, that's now the Cape and Natal, as possible, even a probable threat to their way of life. And I think that's a very key element that Boerta had to, had to manage. And it is for this reason that when the Union was formed, there were certain powers delegated to the four provinces, almost kind of, a kind of provincial protection, if you will. Each province had an administrator, but they didn't have the status or the authority of a governor. There were provincial councils to look after those provincial protections, and the provincial interests were also represented in the Senate. Very interesting. Interestingly, too, when Goethe formed his first cabinet, he was very careful to make sure that language, that's English and Afrikaans, as well as provincial interests, were represented there, too. I think um, I could maybe just add very briefly to that, that um, building on what Ian said, that um, in, in the same way to that provincial level, we had individual men and women that entered the Union, and each had their own uh, aspirations, hopes and fears. Natal tended to, to, to follow its own path, and Goethe represented a compromise in this cabinet. This this became all members of his own party, and this was really a, a mixed bag of people with different personality traits, different histories and uh, different interests. And then this was an attempt uh, to balance the language and all the provincial interests. Essentially, uh, in many, uh, you know, at the time and afterwards, it was referred to the South African experiment, merging these four, these, these different uh, colonies and, and, and uh, provinces then. We see um, the eventual split and we can trace the history of some of these in the, cri in the cabinet crises of 1911 and 1912 and this becomes a very important point and that's the, the break with Herzog and also the alienation of many of the Afrikaners and that leads to the creation of the National Party in 1914. This symbolizes a, a break from a Buddhist party, which is very much the South African party and the link to a British Empire, the National Party, it has a different focus completely. We then see just shooting a brushstroke over the history and we see industrial strikes in July 1913 and also in January 1914. And we see smuts coming forward with a very strong approach to, to these strikes and the ideas of quashing them, just getting them down. And then we see so at this time, we see Boerter government dealing with many crises. We have a cabinet crisis, we have industrial actions, and of course, South Africa is not um, developing in isolation. There's industrialization, there's all kinds of changes happening. And we have then the outbreak of the First uh, World War, which brings things politically to a head. 
we come to the outbreak of the First World War and what is known as the Boer Rebellion. Could you tell us about that and what Bota's role was in the suppression of that revolt? And did his role cause him significant conflict that he had to fight against many of his old comrades that he'd been with, um, you know, 10 years before or 15 years before during the Anglo-Boer War? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Bota was was someone that um, Smuts once described him as a man of, of high emotion in and it was it was it was not meant as an insult it was this was linked Smuts described to the way he could understand people was this what we maybe in modern times we would describe as an emotional intelligence and so he was torn he was torn between fighting for empire and fighting his old, old comrades he was he was not in a good place uh, personally there was an ethical dilemma Boerter was a pragmatist he was also a man of principle and he had sworn an oath to the British. And of course, from his roots and from culture, from his culture, he couldn't uh, separate himself from his people. Um, after the Battle of Mushroom Valley, he was found sobbing over a corpse. And he said uh, that the British would never know how hard it was for him. And that just gives you an idea that, you know, he was, it, it, it was, it was his duty, but also it, it broke. Just bringing that back to, to, to Puerta and his, his understanding of the, the, the the human terrain and the condition for him it was a massive cost uh, personally and then on a practical note and his partner Smuts a different type of man perhaps commented that he never knew why Boerter would let the smallest issue bother him so severely maybe this was not the small issue that he was speaking about it could be something just a passing comment but that just gives you a, an idea of the difference of the two men so putting down the the Boer rebellion came at a tremendous emotional cost to Boerter and one could argue that he never fully recovered from it. In practical terms, we see the wheels coming off for the Union and Buddha comes to the fore as the man of action. Um, there were rumblings of discontent in, in various sectors of poor society, mostly the free state and parts of the Northern Cape. And we see the jealousies and frustrations and anger that was mobilized in the, a number of rebel leaders. And perhaps I can pass over for, to Ian with a full bit more detail. Uh, the rebellion, I think, of 1914 also represented the final break between Boerta and the Afrikaner nationalists. Uh, the estrangement, have, of course, had been growing, but the rebellion and its outcomes had given the nationalists a new mantra and very importantly, also a fresh set of martyrs. Uh, Christian Baez had been drowned attempting to escape government forces. And of course, those government forces were Boerta's forces. Free was executed for high treason, and both of them became rallying cries. I think Boerter was certainly conflicted. He was the prime minister and had personally taken the field also during the operations. Yet interestingly, the man who's perhaps most blamed for these misdeeds was his defence minister Smuts. So what was Boerter's role in the First World War? Uh, Boerter played a very interesting role, and perhaps I can first say that he was in fact a, a lieutenant general in the British Army. That had come, out, come about in a very interesting way. When Gladstone was the Governor General of the Union of South Africa, he'd spoken to Louis Boerter, and he'd said, what do I call you? Do I call you Mr. Boerter, or should I rather call you General Boerter? And Boerter's replied being one word, just yes. And so it was that Gladstone from that point used the form of address, his military form of address. And then a year later, uh, in 1911, uh, the British um, government, in fact, gave him the rank and status of a lieutenant general. So it was sort of, if you will, confirmed. So Boerter was a lieutenant general in the British army during this period. Boerter was prime minister um, for the duration of the First World War and through to his death in 1919. His toughest task, I think, during this time was in fact staying in government. There'd been a continual slide of electoral support toward the National Party uh, of General Herzog. And in 1915, at the general election, 
Boot in fact lost so many seats that he now formed a minority government and survived only with the support of the Unionist Party. And of course, this was to be a thorn in his side throughout the war, because it drew him closer and closer to this pro-British Unionist Party, which of course cost him more and more votes um, from his from his electorate. In military terms, uh, when the rebellion broke out and the first invasion of German Southwest Africa failed, he decided to take the field himself. So he has himself gazetted as commanding chief in the field, and he moves with a force to German Southwest Africa, and he plays a key role in the main attack from the coastal um, towns of Swakopmund in the direction of Vintuk, which of course falls in record time. Denise Rates, the South African soldier and writer, makes the interesting remark that with Louis Boerter in command, uh, German Southwest Africa fell with casualties that numbered fewer than an average trench raid in France. And I think that's a remarkable deed too. He was criticized before this operation in terms of using perhaps a steamroller. South Africans had mobilized maybe as many as 46 to 50,000 troops to deal with perhaps only 10% of that number in the German forces. And then of course too, he also oversaw the widening South African deployment after the fall of German Southwest Africa in May 1915, making the decision uh, to send a contingent to German East Africa, uh, which of course would be commanded by Smuts in 1916 and then by Fundevent in 1917 and 18. Uh, and then of course a brigade too was sent for France, which was diverted momentarily to Egypt, that took part in the Sanusi campaign before joining um, their compatriots on the Western Front in time for the, the first of the Somme battles. Of course, the, the main touchstone there for that brigade, of course, was the battle that was fought at Delver Wood. Very interestingly, too, of course, was Boerter's role in supporting Smuts and Smuts's missions abroad, first in the Imperial War Cabinet, and then, of course, for both of them, they were both signatories at the Paris Peace Conference. They played interesting roles, not only in terms of South Africa's sub-imperial objectives, in other words, in terms of uh, gaining German Southwest Africa, possibly as a fifth province of the Union, which is what they think, I think they wanted, but also in terms of mitigating the sentence that would be passed against Germany. So what was Boter's significance in his day when he died in 1919? So uh, I think Boter was significant for a number of reasons. Uh, he re represented different things to South Africa and to the Commonwealth. He came to signify political opportunity of the British Empire, how a former enemy could be embraced and become a servant and son of the crown. In South Africa, uh, he was, to some extent, and maybe still is, a divisive figure. Did he sell out? And uh, many Afrikaners perhaps think that he did. Others embraced him as, as their leader. And Boerter represented a small part of South Africa that was evolving on a very big scale. Uh, he tried to steer the Union onto a path of development and progress, and that sometimes led to a clash of arms. In his day, he was immensely popular. He captured the imagination of audiences around the world. And then uh, perhaps Ian could add a bit more to this. Well, thank you, Tony. Yeah, Boerter was a charismatic, attractive figure. In his prime, I think his personal magnetism galvanized the people around him. He was physically large and something of a father figure too. For British audiences, he was also the enemy made good. He was a former word general, but one who embraced the peace, unified his country, geographically at least, and became a trusted friend of the British Empire. And indeed, there are not many men like him in the history of the British Empire and Commonwealth. Some may have smugly claimed him and Smuts as tacit proof of a successful and enlightened imperial policy. But the two men together 
largely gave their audiences, I think in South Africa, in Britain, the United States and elsewhere, what they wanted to see and hear. So what what is Bota's significance in modern day South Africa? Well, one might argue today whether Bota was a, a great man, uh, to use Carlyle's term. In the words of British historian Richard Evans, a great man is someone that embodied on a larger than normal scale the wills and aspirations of his contemporaries who anticipated those of his successors. He probably did this for his peers and contemporaries, but almost certainly not for his successors. And I think it's for this reason, perhaps, that he's not claimed as a particularly great man today. Um, he's a contested figure, and we can see the, this contestation in terms of the recent damage that has been done to his monuments and statues. Yet very equally, as Tony has said, we cannot remove Boerter from his times. Uh, just building on that just a little bit, I think we have to understand Boerter in, 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 in context. He was intelligent, successful, and of course deeply flawed, a man of his time with the norms of the day, and so in today's terms, looking back, we will say he's a racist, he was sensitive, he was flawed, he was human. And um, interestingly, as, as Ian mentioned, that the statues of, of uh, Boerte in South Africa from 2015 onwards, there was a spate of vandalisms and, and Boerte was at the center of this and again became a topic of discussion amongst political parties. And that's something that we're going to throw in also is this uh, discussion between the present and the past and how Boerte how, and, and, and where Boerte is placed. What are your plans with all, all this research that you've done on Boerte? So thank you for that. So we're currently working on a draft uh, uh, manuscript and the intention is for the biography to be the go-to book on Boerte. Boerte was a fascinating figure, an enigmatic figure, and and that's for South Africa as well as the, uh, Britain and the Commonwealth. We want this to be a, a book that's interesting. It has to be an academic portrait, but also for, for the general reader. And we want to bring out themes such as, you know, some authors compare him to George Washington, others to Nelson Mandela. Churchill refers to Boerte in his inimitable style as, and says, few men that I have known have interested me more than this grand rugged figure, the father of his country, the wise and profound statesman, the farmer warrior, the crafty hunter of the wilderness, the deep, sure man of solitude. And it's some of these thoughts that we want to bring out. Our book will put some of these claims into historical context and provide a current and, and, and fascinating account of this figure, a towering figure. We will now, although, although there are five extant biographies of Boerte, uh, all lack depth in a critical lens, leaving a significant gap in the historiography. Our book intends to address that gap. It is aimed at the academic military community, but also a wider general readership. Boerte was lionized for his military powers, political new and governing competence. But at the same time, as Tony has said, he was significantly flawed. He's very human, imperfect, inconsiderate and insecure, but also charming, attractive, emotionally intelligent and confident. And we argue he deserves fresh attention and the public deserve a better biography of him. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...